from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. Welcome to another episode, this one done remotely, since we're all uh, enjoying the privacy of our own homes these days, hopefully for a shorter duration than longer. I'm here with an old friend who I'm looking at on screen, Freeman Thomas. Freeman, welcome to the program. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you, Robert. It's really a pleasure to be here and to see you on screen. And it's a shame that we can't be in person, but it is what it is. You know, and so close and yet so far, we're both Californians, Freeman, and not just Californians, we're probably only about 10 miles away from one another as we speak. Freeman, you've been at this business for a long time and have a great laundry list of marks and designs to your credit. I remember meeting you back in 1997 is where we first met, and it was at a Porsche dealership. You may recall that. I was excited. I just ordered a new 993 C4S, and I went out on a limb, and I ordered it in a color called Gulf Blue. Everybody thought I was crazy, except the sales guy, a fellow named Steve Conjure, great guy. And Steve said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, We've got a friend and a customer, this fellow named Freeman Thomas, and he'd love to meet you down here with his Gulf Blue 911. And that was the first day we met. I went down there and you had the most exquisite Carrera parked on the lawn. Am I mistaken? It's about a 1974, 75? Yeah, and it, it was Mexico Blue. Ah. Uh, Okay. Well, my apologies. No, no. I, well, my, you probably got it. My friend, uh, Steve Anderson, had a Gulf Blue one. Ah, that was Steve's. Okay, so yours was Mexico and his was Gulf. Okay. Yes, yes. What a great pair of colors. Obviously, the eye of a designer would have chosen that Mexico blue, an iconic color in the history of Porsche. What year was that? It was a 74 Carrera as well. I got it with about, I think it had 17,000 original miles on it, original paint. It was an amazing car. You know, I remember you having a, a Carrera 2 with cup wheels on it that was in that color. Was it Amazon green or something? Uh, it was turquoise green metallic. Yeah. Now, did you have that before or after the 993? No, I bought that new back in 91, and that was really my first new 911, and man, what a car that was. You know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Those are the cars you wish you still had, and I'm sure you've got a much longer laundry list of those than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that car driving around, and it had the look about it because you had it lowered, it had the cup wheels on it. And I can't remember if you had the Speedster seats in it or not. I did. It was funny. I got a call from a dealer, at uh, a sales guy at Circle Porsche one day, and he said, you know, I got a big fat dentist that wants to buy a Speedster, but he can't fit. And I know your car has those great sports seats in it. Would you ever be interested in trading the buckets from this Speedster for those seats in your car? And I said, boy, you bet, in a heartbeat. So that kind of completed the look long before there was an RS America or, or any of those cars available. Freeman, where to even start? I'm always interested in where people went to school and, and how they kind of learned their trade. Growing up, what was it like? How'd you fall in love with cars and how'd you end up going to Art Center? Well, I was really fortunate in the sense that my dad, who was in the Air Force as we were growing up, and we're talking 1960s on, he was always stationed, it seemed like, in Europe. 
So we would go with him. And I was fortunate to live in countries like uh, Norway, Spain, Greece, Germany. My mom is German and my uncle worked for Bosch. And so I was kind of bitten by the car bug from a really early age. And being in Europe, as a Californian, kind of going back and forth, I became this kind of hybrid between my American dad and my German mother. And so I started looking at things from a different lens. And the car we had in Europe was a 57 Buick Roadmaster. Oh my gosh, you were an outlier. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and that was pretty amazing driving through the streets of Europe, <laughs> you know, up to about 1966. And I was so mesmerized by European design culture, everything from graphic design to product design to architecture to culture. And then when I would come back to the States, I would look at it through the lens of that mixing in with American culture. And so when I turned 17 in high school, we were just a middle-class family, and I really wanted to get back to Europe. And so what I did was I joined the Air Force as well. And long story short, I ended up in Oxford, England. And so on a small base called RAF Upper Hayford, and I bought a motorcycle. That, it was my dream motorcycle. It was a Honda CB400F. Oh, yeah, that was, a, that was a great bike. It was a 1975, and I got it in the spring of 76. It was leftover. It was all red with the red side cover. And I ended up putting over 10,000 miles on that bike in the first year before it started getting cold. And I ended up putting Baranis on it and KD1 Dunlops, and I rode that bike everywhere. And being in England, the early days, I could go to places like Auto Farm, and I go to all the dealers, and I go down to London and see Lancia Stratos in the window, and, yeah, and yeah. really great stuff on the road. And along this whole time, I'd be sketching and drawing and had no knowledge that there was even this profession of automotive design, which I kind of felt you had to be a bit of a left-brainer, really, to be an automotive designer. But in fact, it's the opposite. It's being right-brained and really being able to envision and create. And, and sometimes it has nothing to do with what's rational. Because if we're looking at the future, we don't understand what connects us yet. So when I got back out of the Air Force, there was a small paragraph in Road and Track magazine about a school named Art Center and about how this guy, Bill Dobson, found out about the school and couldn't understand how you can get a degree for just drawing cars. And, and so I said... You mean they pay me for this? Well. Yes, yeah, so I went to Art Center, and my eyes literally just fell out of my head. And I felt that I had found my home. And I went through all the classrooms, went through the gallery. And so I didn't have a portfolio, didn't have a background. So I took a night class. I actually took a couple night classes and ended up building up a portfolio and got admitted into Art Center. And then by the second term, I got a half scholarship. They were only giving out half scholarships at a time. And then by the fourth term, I got a full scholarship. And so I went through Art Center, great teachers, Struther McMinn. That's right. He was a fixture. He was one of the, he was the guy. Harry Bradley. Harry Bradley hated me, but he <laughs> gave me an A every time. There was just amazing inspirations and influences and by the end of fifth semester, we had Larry Shinoda came out to the school and he interviewed our class and he wanted to pick two people to go back with him to 
Indiana to be an intern. And wow. he was at International Trucks at that time. So he picked my friend Albert Yu and myself. So we went back, spent the whole summer with Larry Shinoda and his design team. And what I found when I was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where a lot of the Detroit designers have kind of gone after their career ended in Detroit. Just for listeners who don't know, I mean, Larry was one of the most important designers of the 60s and yes. has some incredible cars to his credit. Yeah. And getting to know that firsthand, because I've always been fascinated by automotive history and people and just where things came from. And so um, Larry was amazing. He was outspoken. He was brash. And the talent that was in that studio was amazing. So at the end of the summer, he asked me, he goes, hey, kid, where do you want to work when you graduate from Art Center? And I said, boy, Larry, I would love to work at Porsche. And so he said, you know, I'll tell you something. When I was at the GM Skunk Works, I worked with Tony Lapine, Anatole Lapine. Wow. And so that was a magic period of GM when stuff was really done in the basement. And Bill Mitchell and Harley Earl were the kings of really what was happening at General Motors. And so he contacts Tony Lapine and he comes back after lunch and he says, hey, Freeman, I just talked with Tony. He'd really love if you would send him your portfolio. So I put my portfolio together and made slides and I sent them over to Porsche, to Tony Lapine. And within about two weeks, I got an offer before I even graduated. I just finished the fifth semester and they were trying to talk me into coming over before I graduated. And so I went back to Art Center. Strother McMinn basically said, no, you have to finish. And I wrote Porsche back and they said, no, we'll hold the job for you. And so as soon as I graduated, I went to Porsche. Well, this is great. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as 99 bucks a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra 50 bucks at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. Freeman, let's get right back into it. Obviously, that time at Porsche, working in the context of such great cars and great people, informed your love of that mark, and it carries on today. I guess you jumped ship from Porsche, and you went to Volkswagen and do some pretty important things there. Is that right? Yeah. Well, what happened was I was at Porsche, and then I got married, and then went back to California. And about a couple months after I was in California, I, I set up my own design firm. And on the phone was Dick Soderberg, who was my boss at Porsche. Dick, by the way, give you a little bit of background. Dick designed the bodies of nine Porsche race cars, starting with 9083 through to 935, project chief in design for 959. Dick was an amazing designer. And so he called me up and he said, look, would you be interested in contracting with us? And I said, absolutely. So at this time, Tony Lapine had retired and Harm the mm -hmm. guy was in. And Harm flew out to California, spent the day with me. 
and basically gave me kind of a blank check to start working with Porsche. And so I had a studio set up in Irvine. And then eventually they talked me into coming back to Vizac and went back to Vizac. And I was there until the end of 1990. During 1990, Jay Mays calls me up and he says, look, we're opening up a new studio in California. And I understand you're the guy that's supposed to be with me. (laughs) (laughs) And because one of the modelers that I worked with, and I worked very closely on a lot of projects at Porsche, his name is Banked. When Jay was looking for his assistant chief designer, basically went to Banked and he said, who should I get? And Banked recommended me. And so I actually turned Jay down four times because I was having a great time at Porsche. It was a really good situation for us. But at the end, decided, you know, this is going to be a really good deal. It was in Simi Valley and had never been to Simi Valley before because I was down in Orange County. So got together and we started that studio in January of 91. And I I stayed really good friends with all my colleagues at Porsche and even to this day have a great relationship with all of them. And because it's one family, designers are like basketball players in the sense that it doesn't matter what team you're playing for, Mm -hmm. they respect you for who you are. That's right. And especially because there is a bit of a revolving door. People go from one company to another, and that's how great ideas get shared and kind of spread across the landscape. Yeah. We have some great names, great people, great talent, great collaboration. Well, obviously, it uh, bore some serious fruit because very shortly afterward, you and and your cronies unleashed the new beetle into the world. (laughs) Yeah. And and that was was interesting because, you know, we were Audi, and we came back one day and decided that first of all, you were thinking early 90s, this is 91, 92, and Volkswagen was about ready to leave the US market. That's right. And with no Volkswagen, there would be no Audi. And so we created a presentation. There was an idea for California that there would be a mandate for electrification. And so we came up with this idea called Lightning Bug. And the original idea was an electric, modern, futuristic Beetle. And that would be to the kind of concept that the original Beetle was in its engineering and its way in which that the body was a pancake, kind of skateboard kind of structure with a body that came out with fenders and so forth, but really geometric shapes. And so we took this idea to Hartley Varkas and presented the idea, and he gave us the approval with a small budget to go to the next step with it. Boy, how far ahead of the curve were you guys back then? Yeah. (laughs) As it went forward, we did a full-size model, which was the Concept One, and it was presented to Ferdinand Pia. Pia fell in love with it, and he was just newly in his role as the head of the Volkswagen Group. And, of course, being the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche. That's right. There was a real legacy there. Yeah, and so that was part of it, and it was also a way that he would have a voice to talk about the future. And so it got green-lighted to go to Detroit in January 94. And what we did, what a lot of people don't know, is that while we were building that car, we had already thought proactively to start designing a convertible version. And then, of course, at Detroit, it was so successful that Pierre said, you know, I want a convertible for the Geneva Auto Show in 94. That was March. So it was only a couple months later. So we really rushed to have that thing and get it air freighted in. And, you know, the rest is really history on that. It's something where, you know, we didn't invent the Beetle. 
and going through the history of designers and the Beetle, you'll see a lot of designers trying to redesign the Beetle. I think what separated us was our approach towards it. Our approach was very serious product design, but this perfect mix between being whimsical to where you related it to the original, but looking forward. It wasn't remotely derivative. It wasn't a pastiche. It wasn't a retro anything. It was an absolutely fresh new design and as revolutionary in many ways as the original Beetle. And yet it was deferential and respectful to the history of that iconic car. Yeah. And, you know, as a designer, there's two trajectories. One trajectory is the designer's vision and the other is reality. And the, the Beetle that came out was reality. I think that had they allowed us to take that trajectory of concept one mm-hmm. all the way to fruition, I think that we would have been really ahead of the curve. Yeah. I mean, we would have had probably the first skateboard platform chassis. We would have had electrification. We would have had sustainability. You also have to remember, we developed special tires for that original concept that were tall, narrow tires, which right. is basically same size as what's on an I-3 right now. That's right. It's what you need for aerodynamic efficiency and all the sorts of things that, of course, nobody even recognized back then as being, certainly a public didn't recognize it as being a wave of the future. The most difficult part, not with Ferdinand Pieck, but there was a lot of individuals within Volkswagen management that just didn't understand the humanity part of what the Beetle represented, especially to Americans. Yeah. And I sat down, you know, as we were developing, when I was doing the interior of the car, I sat down and I sketched out a little vase because I remember the, That's the right. Rosenthal vases of, of the 50s. That's right. And a lot of the guys in the studio didn't understand the meaning of that vase. And they come over to my desk and they would say, what are you doing? I had it sketched on the, the instrument panel and a nice little flower coming out of it. And, and Jay Mays came over and he took one look at it. And he goes, we're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was certainly an iconic flourish with the design. And yeah. again, spoke so much to the humanity that is really a part of, of every great piece of creative design. Well, the concept one of Beetle really propelled Jay into the position of being asked to become director of design for Audi. So Jay tried to talk me into coming back over with him to Ingolstadt. And again, I kept turning it down because I had already reestablished myself back in the, in the States, which is pretty difficult That's once right. you've been in Europe for a while. Absolutely. Especially from the thick of great design to the outskirts of CB Valley, Southern California. That's, right. That's a tough move. Well, anyways, he goes, well, would you be interested in coming over on a business trip? And I go, yeah, I have no problem with that. So I went over. He goes, go out and find an apartment. So I went with his business manager, went around and found this brand new apartment. And while I was in the studio, I was sitting there doodling. And Jay came by my desk and he goes, what's that? And I go, oh, it's just a little sports car I'm thinking of. And he goes, can I borrow it? And I I go, yeah, go ahead. And he comes back a couple hours later. He goes, look, I just shared this with Dr. Pefkin. And Dr. Pefkin then at that point was a head of development for, for Audi. That's right. He's in love with this car. He wants you to do it. And he goes, but you can't do it here. You've got to design it in your apartment. And so that evening they put a drawing table in my apartment. And meanwhile, they started setting up a place out in Geimersheim, a place called Udelhofen, up in the attic where they quickly put flooring down and a modeling table, some boards and stuff like that. 
And I picked two modelers to work with me on this new concept. Amazing. And so we literally only had from the start of that project to a presentation at PIA two weeks, and we had to have a scale model and sketches. Good heavens. And so we did the scale model, and I did another thumbnail. And the scale model was the open version of the car, but this little sketch was the coupe. And PX saw the little sketch of the coupe, and in his very Austrian voice, he goes, but what I want is a coupe. And he looks at the sketch, he goes, I want this coupe. <laughs> that was it. Well, that was the launch of one of the most exciting designs of the decade. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. And that was probably one of the rare moments where I think a designer could take a vision and really do that vision unencumbered, but yet echoed by people around you that felt the same. That's incredible. And of course, that was, for our listeners who don't know, that became the Audi TT. Yeah, what a thing. Obviously, the car made a huge impact and it has continued to evolve today. It's got to be pretty gratifying to see that. Of course, I'm sure the concepts are always the best. Everything loses a little something in translation, but what's amazing is that it was allowed to get loose and make such an impact on the world. Yeah, it's because the vehicle is designed out of the most pure geometric shapes. The collaboration also working with Jay and myself, putting the whimsical aspect to the silhouette mm -hmm. and looking at the instruments and looking at some of the details. But the geometry really is that influence going back and forth in that collaboration. And so that's really important. And so what that did for me was it set my road of a philosophy getting a little bit more cemented down of the type of designer I enjoyed being in that collaboration with engineering and coming up with endearing kinds of concepts that had story, coming up with a name, coming up with the ecosystem around it. You know, because I storyboarded behind the scenes what that car was about, what the culture was about, and it showed that that came to be true. Hold that thought, Freeman. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Freeman, you also spent some time at Chrysler, is that right? At the end of the 90s, I was approached by Daimler Chrysler to become the VP of Advanced Design and Vehicle Architecture. So I talked a lot with my wife about what should we do here? We're doing really well at Audi. We love what we're doing. I joined Daimler Chrysler because it was an amazing opportunity. I knew I needed to grow up a little bit and mature because here I was kind of like a weed growing, but I happened to have a nice flower blooming on me. But I needed to have that bit of discipline to go into that type of industry. And the American automotive industry is very structured, really structured. 
And so the first project that I was given there was to redesign their front-wheel drive cars, which was the Chrysler 300 and the Concorde. And we first brought it into the vehicle architecture. And we had the opportunity because at that time, the merger with Mercedes allowed us to use a lot of the parts bin. That's right. And so we looked at how we could utilize some of that parts bin. And so we came up with the idea, let's do a front engine rear wheel drive architecture. Mm -hmm. And looking at the Hemi engine, but a Mercedes gearbox, Mercedes IRS suspension, all of that. And so we set that up in basically what we call the D-class of vehicle. And so under that D-class, it's a basically a five-meter vehicle. It sort of gets cut off. And so then what we did was we started looking at themes. And I went out to California to the Pacific studio, and there was a young designer, Rob McMahon, and he did this concept called America. And it was kind of a boxy thing at that point, and I, I was smitten by this thing. And so I told him, let's continue with that idea. I brought that idea also back to Auburn Hills, and I put that idea into the architectural studio, and we, we blocked that thing out in full size in clay. And so at that point, it was nothing more than two boxes on top of each other, two rectangles, and it really didn't have a story yet. And so then it thought about the idea of a very high shoulder thing, low cabin, and you come up with metaphors like gangster and, right. and this badass kind of machine. And then I was walking down the hall and they had these beautiful photographs of, of the cars, concept vehicles that were done previously. And I came across the Kronos concept uh-huh. and I looked at the Kronos done by Osama Chicago and I thought, wow, that's the front of the car. There it is. And I went back into the studio and I asked, do we have the digital math for the Kronos? And they looked it up and they go, yeah, we have it. I go, let's just mill the front end of that car on that block of clay right away. And so we did that. And somehow that thing magically started to come together. But that project was highly, highly controversial through the whole time. So what I'm transitioning to at that point is becoming a design director, kind of like within a movie, collaborating between writers and cinematographers and storyboarders and all of that, and taking advantage of a broader team. And so looking at the history behind that with the Gia history was really strong. Coming up with the words noble American sedan, noble American sedan, you know. That's right, because there, there was such a thing at a time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you look at a Chrysler New Yorker or you oh, look yeah. at the original Chrysler 300 from the 50s. From the very first one up through the fins, they were a yeah. magnificent cars. Well, an image of the first one with Ernest Hemingway driving it, you know, just yeah. amazing. And then I thought about Steve McQueen. And I thought of him in Thomas Crown Affair. And I imagined, what would this vehicle be like on the streets of Paris? And there's Steve McQueen driving it. And people would look at Steve McQueen and would say, well, he's an American, but he has these European sensibilities. And so it was a mix of all of this. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up creating this amazing inside-outside property. It had the full theme of the Chrysler 300 on it. And so we took it through what we call metaphoric research, which created a kind of a divided love and hate kind of thing. It was really split in the middle. And it really was until Dieter Zetschik came along. And this thing sort of 
idled in the pipeline. Hmm. And then Dieter Zetsche and Wolfgang Bernard came along and basically saw it and said, we're building that. And so that's when things got really moving. And, and it's really interesting now to see one on the street with you know, big dub wheels on it and attitude. <laughs> and, and it's the one Chrysler people still kind of covet and look at. And- Absolutely. And it still looks much like, well, much like any great design. It really endures. It has a longevity that eclipses its uh, model year. They still look right. Yeah. I really love trying to create that secret sauce that combines story, combines engineering, combines purpose, function with culture. You know, I came up with the word cultural architect is to create something that looks distinctively American, distinctively German, distinctively British. Well, as I'm designing, it's kind of like looking at a palette and a lot of it is self-editing. You sit there and you sketch, and in the beginning, it might not start that way. As you challenge your thoughts, you start looking at things, and sometimes it's that magic element. It's the Chrysler 300. It was not only the proportions, you know, the high shoulder, chopped roof, yeah, but it was that front end. That front end was really important to kind of create the face and the identity And a face of a car, the first six inches of a car, are probably the most valuable real estate because that's what defines a BMW from a Mercedes. That's right. Everything else is so much the same. I'd like to get your take on what I call grill wars and how everything today seems to be defined by a grill that is such a caricature of its former self. Beloved marks like BMW are creating these things that are just, they're a visual atrocity and they're grotesque. Thank you. Coming from a designer, that actually means something. I'm just a guy with an opinion. You actually know what you're talking about. So you would have to say that contemporary designs have really sort of blown things all out of proportion. Pick a mark, any mark, whether it's Lexus or BMW or or even beloved Audi, they've all become rather caricatures of their former selves. Yeah, I think boldness and confidence. There's a saying that if you have a logo or a name and it's really important, you make that logo small. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like having a white wall And maybe if there's a canvas on it, two inches by two inches, you'll be compelled to come towards it and see what that is, you know, because of the importance of a Banksy would be something that would be something like that. A normal graffiti artist would try to cover the wall. That's right. And and I also love designs that are grillless because as you get into the future and there's no longer a function. It's like a, if you remember in the 1950s, for instance, on a Volkswagen or a Porsche, a lot of the coach builders would put grills on the front of the coach build VW and Porsches, and they looked wrong. That's right. And it's like a fake scoop. Absolutely. There's got to be a, an authenticity in a design and design following the function. And let me ask you this, Freeman. I'm always curious when I talk to designers. I remember talking to Tom Jarda years and years ago. He, he designed, of course, some the four headlight Ferrari 330 and, and went on to design the famous Fiat 124 Spider. Pantera. And of course, Pantera. Can't forget the Pantera. Yeah. But I marveled that speaking with him once, he never even had an opportunity to own any of his cars other than a 124 later on in life. What about you? Do you have a desire to own any of these designs that you've created, or do you have any of them? I did. Audi allowed me to buy the last 
Mark I Audi TT that was California compliant. And they actually built it as a 2006 model. And 2005 was actually the last year. It was delivered to me in 2006. And I special ordered the car in Aviator Gray. and mm-hmm. Best color. And funny thing I did with it was I put it away. And it never got more than probably 38 miles on it. And it had all the packing on it. And I just kept it in storage. And just until earlier this year, I have a friend who has a collection. And I offered it to him. And he wanted the car. And so it's now sitting in a beautiful collection. He also owns the Stratus Zero concept. Oh, good heavens. Yeah, so it sits right next to the Stratus Zero. And got some other concepts that I'm not that will to say yet that he's going to be getting, but they're all icons. So I'm very proud that he has it. That's great. Yeah. That's a fantastic home. Freeman and I have so much to talk about. So we're going to continue our deep dive into even more subjects next time on Cars That Matter. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by A.J. Mosley, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.